Welcome back to Busted. I'm Michael Thomas. And I'm Drew Howell. Today we have a special follow-up to our first episode where we discuss the Collins Street Bakery and how Sandy Jenkins stole $16.5 million over the course of 10 years. We had the exciting opportunity to interview Hayden Crawford, a partner at the Collins Street Bakery that was present at the time of Jenkins' fraud. He gave us the inside story, so here we go. Mr. Crawford, welcome. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for letting me um, come in and talk. Of course. So before we get going uh, with Jenkins, I'd like our audience to get to know you a little bit. So can you tell us how long have you been with Collins Street Bakery? Been here for 17 years. It's a family business for me. My dad had been in the business for 55, 56 years. He recently passed away, but I grew up in this business and then actually joined it officially 17 years ago. So you've been in every role of the business, I guess, having grown up. Pretty much. Yeah. As a kid, I was coming into the warehouse and folding boxes and sweeping the floors. And then I moved away. And when I came back, I got a much more cushy desk job, which was a lot (laughs) nicer. What is your uh, role these days? I'm a partner in the business, as was my father before me. And I manage the public relations and customer service areas of the business. You mentioned that Collins Street Bakery has been around for a very, very long time. Can you tell us, really, what is your bakery known for? Well, it's known for fruitcake. We've been around for 126 years. We'll make about 2 million pounds of fruitcake this year. We sell into all 50 states and about 190 foreign countries. So we're a worldwide business selling fruitcake, but we're also just a bakery. So you come into our bake shops and we have dozens of kinds of cookies, cakes, breads, pies, pastries. We have it all. Drew and I have heard about Collins Street Bakery. It's almost 10 years ago when the Sandy Jenkins indictment came down. It was a really hot button issue here in Dallas just because of the extent of the fraud. Yeah. Can you tell us, you know, Sandy had a long history with your bakery. Let's start kind of at the beginning. What do you remember about Sandy Jenkins? He joined the bakery in in 98. But my experience with Sandy, he sat across. I can see his office from here. He was very, very quiet, very to himself, a Walter Mitty type. But interestingly, he was known within the bakery and actually in the town as being a a generous person and a kindly per- of course he's generous with our money but generous person and a kindly person he would come in my office a couple times a year and set a bottle of wine on the desk and just say you know i had this last night thought of you know you'll like it enjoy on me so he was that type of a person but he was so under the radar with us none of us none of the executives here socialized with him with the exception of his direct boss, the CFO. There's a lot of stuff that we would have picked up or hopefully would have picked up had we been in his circle, but we weren't. So Mm -hmm. uh, we just didn't see what would have been probably clues for us had we been socializing with him. And of course, Drew and I have read a whole lot about Sandy and and dealing with similar cases for clients of ours. it, It seems like one of these underlying currents in a lot of these cases is, is these guys 
developed trust over the years. Can you tell us a little bit about how Sandy interacted with, I guess, his colleagues? I'm sure after the fact you've had conversations with people. Was was this a shock? Did was it expected? I mean, how do people react when this kind of all- Yeah, yeah. And you know, my dad said no one can embezzle from you unless you trust them. So it's, it's, it's a weird thing that happens right up front. And in addition to the fact that he was a, a deacon in his church, was a quiet, unassuming man that came into his job and did it, did it well and went home. We all as a group, as the bakery, we're family owned and operated business. We just simply trust Everyone and I that that can be a, a blind spot, obviously, and it was in this case. But that we just put all this trust in in this guy to the point where, because we're a family business, we we didn't divvy up the accounting systems. In the larger corporations, they'll have somebody receives checks, but it'll be someone else that writes checks. So you have that separation. He was both, so he was taking the money in and he was doling it back out. So that was where he was able to get in there and kind of cook the book, so to speak, and get away with all of this fraud. It was like $2 million a year. Can you give us a little bit of an idea about the size of Collins Street Bakery back in, in 2013 when this was uncovered? It was, we're still doing about the same amount of fruitcake production as we were then. So about 2 million pounds of fruitcake. Our company is a very seasonal business, as you can imagine. Um, sure. We're all fourth quarter. So the three quarters out of the year, we'll have about 80 employees full-time. And then we'll move into the fourth quarter and we really start blowing and going and we'll we'll have north of 500 folks in here. We can crank up to about 20 million cakes per day and these are hand-decorated cakes. Wow. So it's, it's a big deal. And then mid-December, late December, that demand is gone. No one's ordering cakes. We send everybody home and it's just so quiet you can hear a cricket chirp. So how do you think that Sandy Jenkins got away with this fraud for so long? He started in 1998. Obviously, it was uncovered in 2013, almost kind of by accident, really. He did come in in 98. You got that right. But he didn't start actually embezzling or stealing from us for five years. So it's about 2003. So he started with petty cash. And he found that we were loose enough that he could write checks to himself, cash them, and nobody was missing it. It would The clerks would see that Sandy had written a check, and it all looked right to them. Then he started paying his credit cards off. So he get a credit card bill, write a check to it. We've got a stamp that get, has our owner's name on it, and he'd pay off his credit card bill. That's where he got caught. I'll give you one other quick thing that he would do before I go back and tell you about getting caught. Another trick was he'd write a check, $10,000 to Neiman Marcus, and he'd tear that off, put it in an envelope, and mail it. Then he'd write on the stub, void, made a mistake. And he'd drop down one, and he'd say he'd put in the check register, Navarra Pecan Company paid $10,000. He'd take that check, tear it up, throw it away. Navarro is one of a number of vendors that we use where we spend big dollars on a regular basis. So he was able to take large sums of money and then hide them in these transactions that look like they're to legitimate businesses that we would pay this to. 
And so when the clerks would go through at the end of the month and balance, everything again seemed right. Now, the way he got caught was he paid off one of his credit cards and Symmetric Walker, who you've heard about, who was a bank trained clerk that we had brought in, she saw that this check was written to a, a credit card company that the bakery did not use. She knew, well, this, this is wrong. What, what in the world could this be? She goes in, not knowing better, to Sandy, the guy who'd just done it, and said, hey, I don't understand. What is this? And he goes, Sandy says, don't worry about it. I know what that is. I'll take care of it. Not to worry. Well, thank heaven, she's a little suspicious. So she goes back in and starts flipping through the books, and she starts finding these these registers that I was talking about where they would jump a number. So the uh, you take check 100 and send it off to a personal account, and then you take check 101 and tear it up. And she started seeing that the numbers weren't matching up, that the, the number on the check and the number on the register were, were different. So she discovered about $280,000 worth of that Friday afternoon. We saw the fraud Thursday evening, end of day. She did. Friday morning, she had come up with 280000 more. We wow. go in, tell our CFO and our COO, and they bring him into their office and then confront him. And he immediately goes white. He knows he's caught. One of the interesting things he says is, if I were bipolar, which I am, would that be a defense for me? And, of course, Oof. they said, yeah, they said, wait. That's up to you, buddy. But we're escorting you out of the bakery and you're not coming back in. We'll send you stuff home from your office. And we, at the time, thought it was 280000 So the weekend goes and we come back Monday and the, and the number is more like five or six or $7 million. And it eventually, within that week, we finally got to the point where it was almost $17 million. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was unbelievable. Well, one of the questions I have is now that, Obviously, you have the benefit of hindsight bias. Looking back, can you think of any red flags or signs of uh, there may be something off here that, you know, might that maybe got overlooked or he got the benefit of the trust that he had built up that if it if those types of things had been looked into a little bit might have helped uncover this fraud earlier? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, hindsight 2020. Of course, there's a whole bunch of things that were sure. red flags looking back, but they weren't in the thick of things. It, they just weren't. Uh, for right. example, he had beautiful cars, a number. In fact, our accountant was telling me that he had actually had 38 cars over the course of the 10 years that he was doing this. Uh, Mercedes, Lexus, a Denali, a BMW, a Bentley, a Porsche. I mean, it was just amazing. But again, as I've said before, those cars were invisible to us because they were at his house. And we didn't socialize. What he did do one time, which was a little bit of genius, was I was walking with him out to the parking lot one day, and there was this gorgeous Lexus convertible peacock blue with dark brown leather interior car. And that was just gorgeous. And he walks over to it and climbs in. And I, I said, I don't remember you having that car. That is a beautiful car. And he says, well, I'm a car trader. I flip mm. cars. He goes, you know, you're driving that car over there. You probably got another year on the note. You've been paying the same thing all along, and it's now four years old. This car's brand new. I'll drive it for a couple of months or maybe a year, and then I'll flip it and probably be paying less in it than you are for your four-year-old car. So that was one of his stories. 
he would bring these beautiful watches to work from time to time. He'd be wearing one or even show a case with a couple of minutes. And he told people that his father had been a watch collector for all of his lifetime and that he'd received the uh, watch collection in the will and that he just he loved the watches and tried to add to it. And that was his story about these nice watches that he wore. He flew private planes to different locales. And again, Bob McNutt and I and the rest of the executive team never flew, didn't know he had a plane. There were friends that did. But what he would tell people is he had an uncle out of state who was very wealthy and used to use a plane all the time and no longer needed the plane, didn't use it, was okay with him using it. So he was just using his uncle's plane. Then another story, I mean, it was story after story, was that he and his wife both at about the same time inherited a lot of money from their families. So there's just some of the stories that at the time, whenever you saw something unusual and that story came out, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Now, when you look back on it, you're like, oh, my God, how many red flags is this? But when you're in the middle of it, believe me, as you guys know, people get embezzled all the time and they're always surprised. Absolutely. It's always a a state of shock. And one of the things that people often ask is, well, how do businesses just lose sight of the fact that there's $2 million missing from the bottom line. And can you tell us a little bit about what was going on at the bakery level? Y'all were in expansion mode at this time, right? Y'all were looking at growing. Yes, yes. We're a big business. As I said, we're 50, all 50 states, 190 foreign countries. We're generating 25 to $30 million in annual sales. We were in expansion mode. As you just said, we were building these bake shops on the highway. What we had seen was our mail order part of our business, which is the mainstay and the biggest part of our business, was slowly ticking down year after year. People were getting less friendly and a little bit more hostile to fruitcake. So we start building our stores, hoping to get ourselves out in front of the traveling public, boost sales that way. So that was one of the expenses and income and expenses that we were now having to manage. So it kind of added some complexity to the books. So again, it's just so much complexity for what's a family business who's checked on by clerks that these things just kind of got lost. And when we did, after several years of having this, uh, we'd start out the year saying, okay, it looks like we're poised to make about $2 million. End of the year, it's, well, we didn't make it. What happened? What's going on? Why didn't we achieve those numbers? Well, we... We knew the demand for fruitcake was in decline. We knew that. So when we first started feeling this, we sent the accountants in to figure out each product, the cost, the labor, the price, to see if we were indeed bringing home enough to the bottom line so we, that wasn't our problem. Each of those took us through a season. Uh, we'd say, nope, it wasn't our profit margins. Nope, it wasn't hiring practices. Nope, it wasn't inventory control. And finally... Symmetric spotted it in the books. We never thought, because we had these meetings, and Sandy Jenkins is right there with us, knowing what we're looking at, what we're concerned about. So he was able to make the appropriate steps to stay in, in front of us. Mindset is, is really important, too. I mean, you see that the business isn't doing as well as you had expected or hoped. But at the same time, the last thing you think about is somebody's robbing us. We've got to figure out where our leak is. You analyze a million different other issues. You never think someone's stealing you or robbing you blind. 
we're a family business. And not to say that corporations are this way, because they, I'm sure they are, but we trust implicitly everybody. And most of us are, a lot of us are family, multi-generational as well. It's just this trust runs through the veins of this business. And he profited from that. We just never looked his way. Was that trust so strong that when Symmetric came and said, hey, I found this, and obviously, you know, we've already talked about how over the course of the next few days and months, you found more and more and more, but was the initial response, that can't be right? I mean, what was the thought when that very first indication was brought in by Symmetric? Yeah, no, it was a sucker punch. I mean, we were all stunned. This, You mean Walter Mitty? was stealing money from us. No, the guy that brings in bottles of wine to me, oh yeah, we we were, of course we were stunned. We were completely stunned. If you were to talk about somebody that's going to steal that kind of money, you would think about somebody bolder and more powerful, and but not this guy. I mean, he truly was just quiet as a mouse. And for him to have done that, and with the as huge a sum as this was, a relentlessly every year, year after year, to take that much money, it's impossible to believe. It's still hard for me to believe. Can you tell us what's been kind of the lasting impact of Jenkins's fraud on the Collins Street Bakery? Have we changed? Have we adopted new procedures? Can you tell us just a little bit about how does the Collins Street Bakery look today versus what it looked like when Jenkins was there? Once we realized, of course, what had happened, we we knew immediately that we needed to separate the two functions. Everybody else, you know, all other businesses do it. We just, as a mom and pop business, we had never, we just organically had grown and trusted. And you know, our previous accountant had been with us for 50 some odd years. So it was, it was a blind spot. So we, we split that up. We now have three different eyes that go through every check that goes through. If a check is over $20,000, it has to be hand signed. We brought in an inside CPA. We did a forensic outside audit, and then we now do annual outside audits. So yeah, it changed us. But ultimately, the bakery is much healthier without a fraudster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 man. Well, I I know that um, you've got a, a documentary that's out on Discovery+. Plus. So if people are interested in more information, they can find it there. And I know at, at least at some point there was discussion of, of a movie. Has there been any more discussions about that? There is. It's starting to recirculate. So originally, the writer, the screenwriter, scriptwriter, whatever you call him, approached us and said, I've got this script. It's been floating around Hollywood. Will Ferrell has mentioned interest in playing Sandy. Laura Dern has mentioned her interest in playing the wife. So now you have those two actors that are planning doing this movie. And then COVID hits, everything gets tossed. But we've now been told, rumor right now, we haven't heard for sure, but we have been told that the script is still around Hollywood, that Zach Galifianakis now would like to play the part of Sandy, and that Melissa McCarthy wants to play the wife. I think those are two better than the previous. So that's all we know there. Um, well, I'll go so ahead that and movie may happen. We're, we're waiting to see. I'll throw my hat in the ring. You know, if, if, you, if you need anybody else, you know, I'm, I'm stating my interest right now. It will be my debut. Um, so I'll be waiting for that phone call. All right. Before we let you go, I think it would be helpful if you could 
Tell us, do you have any recommendations? You're a partner at this business. Do you have any recommendations how if small businesses getting off the ground, mom and pop shops that have grown into big enterprises like yours, what recommendations would you have for them to prevent this type of thing from happening to them? Yeah, uh, the most obvious one is is to know your soft spot. Ours, and I mean, everybody's the same. It's their accounting department. That's where the money comes in and flows out. And you got to be sure that you're on top of that. Make sure that you've got a, a good accounting department with a separation of powers, so to speak. And then I guess just what we both, what Bob and I both found out about is you should know what your execs are doing socially. I mean, you should be a part of their of the social life so you can see. Once we, in retrospect, saw what these this couple was doing with the jets and the they they run up two million dollar bills at Neiman Marcus. It was just extraordinary what they were doing, but nobody was really aware because, as I said, they were very very under the radar, very quiet folks. But if you could if you socialize with your all your key people and take care of your accounting department, that should protect you from most. Well, we appreciate your time, Mr. Crawford, and and of course everybody, be sure to check out Collins Street Bakery or go to fruitcake.com and order yourself some fruitcakes for the holidays. Thank you guys for letting us tell our side of the story. Thank you for listening to this production from Foley and Lardner, LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley and Lardner LLP on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners, or its clients. The podcast is not intended to create, and listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, expressed or implied, as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness, and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, the contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.